a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I welcome you to The Brian Hyde Show, where we revel in wrong think. Joined now by one of my favorite wrong thinkers, that would be Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Oh, I'm great. I'm practicing normalcy, as is my practice. How about you? Yes, and and what a subversive thing that is these days. How dare we (laughs) be normal? Isn't it? Well, um, I thought we could talk about uh, something that's happened in Virginia that's very encouraging about somebody else who has been practicing normalcy at personal risk to himself. Uh, There's a guy named Matt Strickland who uh, owns a restaurant called Gourmelts. It's basically a um, um, high-end cheese sandwich shop up in Fredericksburg. And he refused to close his doors or impose face diapering, not only on his customers, but on his employees. And he felt the full wrath of Gesundheitsführer Kuhnman uh, Northam, the governor of Virginia. And uh, he defied him. And despite his business license being pulled, despite the health department being sicked on him, he's kept his place open. Lots of patrons supported him. And now... Uh, a court has sided with him against the Gesundheitsführers, wow. uh, which is a really good piece of news. And you know, the more of this sort of thing that happens, the better. The court denied the, I'm going to use the word I just made up, Fauciian claim <laughs> made by these Gesundheitsführers of an unproved assertion that somehow keeping his doors open and not having people wearing the face diaper is a, is a threat to public health. You may have caught the exchange between Senator Rand Paul and uh, Fauci the other day where uh, uh, Senator Paul grilled Fauci and said, look, you keep insisting that people wear these masks all the time, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you've had the thing and that you've been vaccinated, uh, on the basis of some speculative risk that there might be a variant. The variant, that's replaced the cases, the cases. They now do the variant thing. But there's zero evidence of this. It's just, it's endless, and and it it has to be called out. You can't just throw a claim out there, oh, we're all going to die because something might happen. It's absurd. It has to stop. And that's what the court said in its decision in support of the guy who owns this Gourmet's place. And I think that that's just an outstandingly good piece of news today. Now, something I would like our listener to consider is uh, how much courage does it take for a business owner to stand up against the, the health department, against, you know, government officials mm-hmm. who are, are actively out there, you know, making threats. They're flexing. They will find sure. you. We'll shut you down. We'll arrest you. Well, you know, I think it actually takes less courage than people realize. If you stop to think about it a little bit, it's like the schoolyard bully. If you stand up to him, the bully oftentimes will back down. And if you don't, the bullying just gets worse. And I think these business owners, and this goes for restaurants, it goes for, for any kind of uh, open-to-the-public enterprise, should understand that by cowing and bending and thinking, oh, I'll just do what they say and maybe I'll be okay, they open themselves up to being locked down again this fall when the third wave or the fourth wave or the variants or whatever the next excuse is going to be that are going to destroy their livelihoods, put them out of business, take food out of their children's mouths, and get them kicked out of their houses. It's enough. Uh, it's time to stand up to this stuff and say no more. You know, I'm looking at your article here about uh, about this brave restaurant owner in uh, Fredericksburg, and, and the point you make here, I think, has to be considered. Why would the government even threaten him, or why would they lean on him in the first place? Well, because we have concerns about health. 
But you mm-hmm. point out, nobody was sick, either from yep. foodborne illness or roaches or anything else. They were mainly concerned that uh, you just aren't making people comply. That's exactly right. And I think that that's, that's the same point that Paul made the other day, and I think it's one that bears repeating over and over until it finally sinks into people's heads, that you cannot impose burdens on people based on assertions. If you establish that somebody has done something that has resulted in a harm to other people, hey, okay, I get that. Uh, at that point, you can justify doing something to alter the behavior or uh, take some action to prevent it in the future. But just saying that somebody might do something and that you're afraid this might happen is an open-ended and, by definition, tyrannous kind of attitude, and, and it just has got to stop. It's funny, I was just having this discussion this morning, not so much related to COVID, but uh, the um, shooting at a, a Boulder, Colorado uh, supermarket mm-hmm. yesterday. Somebody started yep. out with, well, how much more is it going to take? And, and I mm-hmm. told them something that I learned from you, and that is, look, focus on the person who actually caused the harm, hold them accountable, That's right. leave everybody else alone. And the guy's first response uh, who, who challenged this was, well, but how do, we, how do we prevent people from doing bad things? And, you know, the answer is you don't. Right. You hold you them accountable them when they after. do bad things. Right. Yeah. Right. You hold them accountable when they do bad things. And if you take the opposite point of view, there is literally nothing beyond, beyond the potential for being circumscribed. Uh, let's say you want a Corvette. You know, you, you buy a fast car. It's capable of doing 180 miles an hour. Should that be forbidden because it's capable of doing 180 miles an hour on a public road, notwithstanding that you've not driven it recklessly, you haven't done any of those things? You can just think about practically anything in the world could potentially somehow result in a harm to somebody. And this idea that because it could potentially and it might, uh, we all have to be treated like idiot children and locked down, I'm using that phrase because that's the phrase that they use, is obnoxious and offensive and tyrannical and should be something that most Americans find despicable and intolerable. i got to share something with you and just get your reaction to this. In my mm-hmm. home state of Utah, our, uh, our mandates, our mask mandate, will, will be lifted on April 10th, uh, so they mm-hmm. say. You know, the, the masters will, will uh, give us a little bit more uh, length on our leash. Um, Kane County, Utah, which is where Kanab mm-hmm. is located. That's where they used to film a bunch of old John Wayne Westerns and whatnot. It's a small kind of frontier town right in the, the southern edge of, of Utah, right on the border with Arizona. Kane County has looked around and said, you know what? We can't see anything that is going to change between now and April 10th. As of today, we are lifting all mask mandates you know, you can wear one if you want to, but it's no longer mandated. And you would not believe the freakout and the pushback and mm-hmm. the accusations of they're trying to murder people. And mm-hmm. I, sure. I can't believe how the control freak comes out when someone says, okay, we're done with this. That's right. Well, the zealot, the religious fanatic. And again, note that there is no evidence behind this. They simply have this freakout, as you rightly describe it. Uh, note that all of these so-called super spreader events that we've heard moaned about now for the past six months, uh, going back to the, uh, the Sturgis rally last summer, uh, the Super Bowl, oh, everybody's going to die because people are in contact with each other. They're not wearing their masks. And then you know, the story just goes away because nobody dies. At what point are we going to demand as a society that, look, your hysterical fear is simply not sufficient. You have got to, the burden of proof is on you. If you are going to insist that other people bear this burden and do these things that you insist are necessary, well, by God, you better be able to substantiate the reasons for it. And if not, it's enough. It's got to stop. 
Well, that's encouraging. I'm, I'm grateful for the courage of this uh, this restaurant owner. I hope others are taking note. Um, I still see massive compliance, and I think you and mm-hmm. I have talked about um, yeah. some some people have developed a, what a dependence upon uh, upon wearing the mask. They don't feel comfortable without it. Yeah, I think it's social pressure. They have achieved that um, by all of the initial mandates that were enforceable. You know, when they had the guards at the door, they wouldn't let people in. They've dialed that back a lot, at least in my area. You can go into the stores and nobody says anything to you. But like you said, almost everybody in the store is wearing their facial codpiece. And I think it's because everybody else is wearing it. And it's just like being in seventh grade again. Everybody wants to be like the other kids and feels this tremendous peer pressure and doesn't want to stand out. And also, you have to bear in mind that uh, if you're not a large man, if you're um, a woman, if you're an older person, uh, there is tangible fear that you're going to be accosted by some sickness psychotic. And a lot of people just don't want to put themselves in that position. So even though they don't want to wear the holy vestment, they put it on just because they're, they're scared. They don't want to be harassed by people, and that's entirely understandable. Well, I'm sure you've seen the video of the uh, woman getting arrested down in Galveston, Texas at uh, Bank of America. Um, yes, that was beyond beyond horrible. Of course, it's just one of many. Yeah, it's I I don't know how people can see something like that and not recognize, you know, where the real problem is. But predictably, you'll find a majority of people will jump on, well, it's her fault. She should have just mm-hmm. done what she was told and she shouldn't have flouted their rules and you know, they they look for any reason to believe that what happened there was necessary and proper when when it's anything but. Well, you know, people have made the reference uh, to the Milgram experiment. You remember the Milgram experiment back in the 60s? Oh, yeah. And that's essentially what's been happening. People are conditioned to defer to what is perceived to be authority. If authority says to do something, even if it's something that's on the face of it, if you were to look at it and examine it, a really evil thing, They'll do it because they have this, 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 this mechanism in their mind that psychologically that makes, them, um, makes, them very, makes it very difficult for them to stand up to any kind of authority. So that's why people just stand there while you know, something awful occurs right in front of them, and they don't even say something. Like in that, the case of that Bank of America video, uh, not one of those people said, you know, this is out of hand. Leave that woman alone. This is, this is not the way things should be in a free country. Nobody even said anything like that, let alone stepped in to do anything. Here, here. We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We'll come back. We'll talk about a couple other relevant things. Electric cars. I'm hearing more and more that electric vehicles are becoming the norm. Eric is, is my go-to guy when it comes to uh, deconstructing some of these myths. And we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. We talk about freedom whenever we get together, Eric, but uh, you are, I believe you, you kind of earned your bones as an automotive writer with a, with a strong minor in freedom. And uh, I, I read very closely what you have to say about uh, trends in the automotive world. Um, what did I hear last week? One of the big major manufacturers is no longer going to be uh, doing combustion engines. Audi. I heard Audi yep. is going to phase out combustion engines. What a shame. Yeah, it's not just Audi. It's also Jaguar Land Rover um, wow. and several others. And they, they're, they're talking about doing it uh, by 2025 or 2030. That date continues to pop up. 
And it's important to point out this is not market-driven. Right now, electric cars, uh, despite the appearances, you know, you see them all over the place in the media, um, are only about 1% of the cars on the road. And almost all of them are in places like Southern California, very you know, affluent areas where, uh, frankly, rich, virtue-signaling liberal types can afford to buy them. Uh, however, um, it begs the question of why are the car companies committing to electrification? You hear that verbiage a lot. And it's because Biden has been selected as president. The Green New Deal appears to be coming. And there are going to be more government mandates forcing the manufacture of electric cars while at the same time making non-electric cars increasingly expensive and unappealing to buy. Gas prices, of course, are being jacked up artificially by making it harder to get oil out of the ground, making it more expensive to sell it, so that uh, they can, as they put it, nudge people into these electric cars. Wow. But at least we're being environmentally friendly, right? I mean, come on, Earth Day is coming up. And that's a whole other misnomer. You can get into uh, the battery issue, which we've talked about before, but another interesting aspect of it that I wrote an article about recently has to do with the, uh, the use of plastics uh, in these cars uh, for many of the exterior body panels. Guess what plastics are made out of? <laughs> oil! You know? And, and they're also, it's, it not only is oil being used to make them and all of the associated emissions that uh, result from the manufacturer, plastic is really fragile. You may have noticed that in these little fender bender accidents you see, uh, where it would have been in the past when cars had external metal bumpers, something where you could, you know, you could buff it out, no big deal. Now the whole front clip of the car comes off, or the whole rear clip of the car comes off. And I use the term clip specifically because they're literally clipped on. People don't realize that. They, they, they will tear off uh, at the least provocation, minor accident. And now you're looking at having to replace this large portion of the car, the front and rear end, of plastic, which has to means making another big chunk of plastic that has to be painted. And you think about all of the scaling environmental consequences of that, but nobody cares because we're talking about virtue signaling. We're not talking about facts. We live in a time now, and it has whether you're talking about cars or whether you're talking about uh, the, the sickness, psychotics, it's all about feelings and how it looks not the facts and that's what's you know i I use this old the phrase and they ask me why i drink you you try to have rational conversations with people you try to present facts and you just run up against this wall of their feelings and you can't do anything with people like that and that's the we've got an infantilized population of of feelers who don't want to hear the facts they just want to feel the way they feel wow that, that catches up with the people after a time, though, right? You can't run on feelings alone. Of course. You can't build a bridge if you don't use math. You know, you, can, you can't feel it into existence. You know, reality bites, as the saying goes. Sometimes you just have to accept that this is the way things are, whether you like it or not. Uh, and I think, to a great degree, a lot of the things that people think they like or they feel that they like are, are based on the unreality of things. In other words, they don't have to confront it, like the electric car thing. It's all nice to talk about whiz-bang electric cars. Ooh, look, uh, clean energy. Well, what happens when they find out that clean energy is going to cost them forty to fifty thousand dollars, as opposed to the eighteen or nineteen thousand dollars that it costs right now to buy a non-electric car? Then I think their feelings are going to change a little bit. Well, I'm I'm experiencing a, a simultaneous mix of pride as well as a little bit of uh, of disgust. My son just bought. Uh, not his first car, but this he just bought a new car, a, a new used car. And I think it's like a 2014, maybe 2015, um, Volkswagen Passat TDI. 
excellent, and great as, choice. Yeah, as he as he was picking mm-hmm. it out. I was like, I really want him to read everything you've written on the whole Volkswagen debacle. Mm-hmm. Remember how they cheated, you know, on their mm-hmm. emissions tests and they damaged mm-hmm. the environment? You know, I mean, they were trying to speed up climate change, I believe, is what mm-hmm. they were doing. Yep. But but I, I just lament that he can't have, you know, a, a TDI that isn't messed with, you know, that, that gives you the best mm-hmm. of, of power as well as economy. Yeah, you know, a lot of people who aren't familiar with those cars may not know this. But they typically averaged, or they were capable of, on the highway, getting more than 50 miles per gallon, which is about as good as a current hybrid can deliver for thousands of dollars less than a hybrid costs. They could go 700 miles on a tank full of fuel. And being diesels, with any kind of decent care, those things would go for 300,000 miles, too. So here you had a very practical, very efficient, very affordable car, and that's precisely why the federal government curb-stomped them. Yeah, and, and, you know, for, let's do a quick recap. For people who don't understand, Volkswagen fudged the uh, emissions, or they, they got the computer to fudge the emission results uh, just a little bit. It's not like, oh, yeah, they were rolling coal Fractionally. everywhere. Fractionally. It, again, it's, we live in an enumerate society. People can't do supermarket math. So it was presented as this, this sort of ghoulish, nightmarish scenario where these cars were spewing black clouds of death down the road, when, in fact... All it was was uh, a difference of, of, of a less than a 1% amount of oxides of nitrogen being emitted under certain conditions, not all the time, wow. under certain conditions. So, again, it's analogous to this whole woo-flu thing that doesn't kill 99.8% something of the population, and yet everybody's running around like a chicken with its head cut off, terrified that death is everywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's, again, it gets back to people are just have been turned into idiot children who don't want to stop and think and look at the facts and draw a conclusion based on that. They just want to shriek and feel. Well, this is why we ask the deeper questions. And speaking of deeper questions, uh, what's your take on uh, gas prices? I'm not liking the direction they're headed right now. Boy, I know. isn't it, it, The increase is happening almost daily. In the course of, what are we now, about three months into the year, uh, in my area they have gone up from just over $2 to almost $3 a gallon and I fully anticipate that they're going to go higher. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the year we're up to about $4 a gallon because selections do have consequences. And one of the first things that uh, El Presidente Biden did was to cancel the Keystone Pipeline and to cancel some leases on, on, uh, on natural gas refineries in, in Louisiana. And, you know, it's in the air that more of this sort of thing is going to come so when you have less of something, the, the price of it tends to go up. Uh, it's not that there's uh, any lack of abundance of oil in the ground or that's accessible here. It's just that the federal government is making it more difficult to get it, more difficult to transport it, uh, is making it more expensive. So we're all going to pay for that. And it's deliberate policy. They, they very much want us to squeal like pigs when, it, when we try to fuel up our vehicles uh, in order to nudge us into electric cars or, better yet, from their point of view, into a public bus or a public rail system. That's really what their end goal is. Yeah, my, my squeal like a pig moment came a little over a year ago when I was gassing up the rental car in Germany. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, was, and I, I don't want to see those kind of prices here. I mean, when you're filling up a very, very compact car and it's still costing you upward of $70 per fill-up, oh, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've got to put a tank full of gas in my old muscle car, which has a 22-gallon tank, and the car has to have premium. So even uh, at current prices, I'm going to be playing close to 100 bucks to, to fill the tank up. Yeah, thank goodness it's good on, uh, on mileage, though, right? I mean, 
Well, thank goodness I don't have to drive it often. I mean, okay. it's a toy. I keep it in the garage for fun. But even my little pickup, uh, I've got a little four-cylinder pickup truck that I knock around in when I'm not test driving new cars. And it now costs me about 40 bucks to fill that little truck up. Well, Eric, unfortunately, we are up against the clock once again. Tell people mm-hmm. where they can find your website. Sure. It's epautos.com. And if they just Google my name, I'll, I'll come. Well, I shouldn't say Google. DuckDuckGo, my name. Uh, <laughs> it'll come up, and I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Okay, and I will have links in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com. Eric Peters, thank you so much once again for visiting with me. Talk to you soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for engaging in wrong think with us today. Reveling in it, actually. So, it's been my experience, uh, you know, at least as long as I've been paying attention to what's going on around me, that tyranny can come in a lot of different forms. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Some people think, well, no, for it to be tyranny, it's got to be, you know, a guy with a funny-looking mustache, goose-stepping around, you know. We know it when we see it. No, it can take some some pretty interesting and sometimes even innocuous forms. And I would just uh, point to what we've seen emerge over the last year or so. A lot of these uh, current uh, authoritarian medical mandates, they're a good example of how tyranny can come creeping in on cat's feet. Or maybe even, you know, as, hey, this is a favor for you. But the latest manifestation that is starting to emerge looks a lot more like a statement of, you want a job? Get the shot. Got an article here from Ron Paul. Yes, the Ron Paul, medical doctor. He says, mask tyranny reached a new low recently when a family was kicked off a Spirit Airlines flight because their four-year-old autistic son was not wearing a mask. Now, the family was removed from the plane, even though the boy's doctor had decided the boy should be exempted from mask mandates because the boy panics. And when he panics, he engages in behavior that could pose a danger to himself when wearing a mask. And this is beside the fact that four-year-olds don't present much of a risk of spreading or contracting coronavirus. Even if masks did prevent infections among adults, there still would be no reason to force children to wear masks. Ron Paul says mask mandates have as much to do with health care as Transportation Security Administration screenings have to do with stopping terrorism. Ooh, smack. (laughs) Masks and TSA screenings are security theater done to reassure those frightened by government and media propaganda regarding coronavirus and terrorism that the government is protecting them. Now, Ron Paul says COVID oppression will worsen if vaccine passports become more widely required. He says vaccine passports are a digital or physical proof that a person has taken a coronavirus vaccine. New York is already requiring individuals produce digital proof of taking a coronavirus vaccine before they're admitted to sporting events. Now, Ron Paul says, imagine if the zealous enforcers of mask mandates had the power to deny you access to public places because you have not gotten your shot. I don't have to imagine 
I can actually, I can picture them, you know, lusting for this kind of power and control. Even worse, he says, what if, an, what if a potential employer had to ensure that you were, quote, properly vaccinated before hiring you? That could come to pass if proponents of mandatory E-Verify have their way. See, E-Verify requires employers to submit personal identifying information, like a social security number or biometric data, to a government database to ensure job applicants have federal permission to hold jobs. Oh, I'm telling you, the gig economy is looking better and better every moment. Currently, E-Verify is only used to assure a job applicant is a citizen or legal resident. However, he says its use could be expanded to advancing other purposes, such as ensuring a potential new hire has taken all the recommended vaccines. Ron Paul says E-Verify could even be used to check if a job applicant has ever expressed or associated with someone who has expressed, quote, hate speech, conspiracy theories, or Russian disinformation, which is code for facts embarrassing to the political class. He says many employers will be reluctant to hire such an employee for fear their businesses will become the next targets of cancel culture. Those who doubt this should consider how many businesses have folded under pressure from the cultural Marxists and fired someone for expressing an unapproved thought. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we're even here. Ron Paul says, Politicians and bureaucrats have used overblown fear of coronavirus to justify the largest infringement of individual liberty in modern times. COVID tyranny has been aided by many Americans who are not just willing to sacrifice their liberty for phony security, but who help the government take away liberty from their fellow citizens. Now, the good news is that as it becomes increasingly clear that there was no need to shut down the economy, throw millions out of work, subject children to the fraud of virtual learning, and force everyone to wear a mask, more people are turning against the politicians and experts behind the lockdowns and mandates. He says, hopefully, these Americans will realize that in addition to coronavirus lockdowns and mandates, the entire welfare, warfare, fiat money system is built on a foundation of lies. I love Dr. Paul. The guy can say so much in a, in a very uh, small amount of space. And yes, there is a link to his article in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Now, this brings me to the subject of personal responsibility. And I've pulled up an article here from uh, John Miltimore. This was published actually back in November. Jordan Peterson's Most Important Rule for Life. It's possible that I have shared excerpts of this but I'm going to come back to this just because I see Jordan Peterson, <clears throat> he, is, he is out there and making waves. What did I see last week? Uh, I believe, uh, I think he tweeted Elon Musk and said, hey, we should sit down and talk sometime. Meaning, you know, let's, let's do a, an interview together. And Musk responded, absolutely, what do you want to talk about? And Jordan Peterson just said life. And I thought, wow, that's, these are two of the biggest nonconformists that I can think of. I would love to see what they, they have to say when they sit down <clears throat> together. I mean, Peterson is, is storming the world with his message of personal responsibility. Musk, well, let's just say he has a lot of irons in the fire, and there are a lot of uh, different countries right now looking around going, how come his SpaceX program is dominating space travel? All the nations of the world, you know, even the ones that have combined their might with the International Space Station, feel like they're being left in the dust, and probably for good reason. But let's come back to Jordan Peterson. 
John Miltimore says, Nearly two years ago, friends purchased me a copy of Jordan Peterson's best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life. And he says, I started the book shortly after receiving it, but somewhere along the way I got sidetracked and didn't finish. He says, This never used to happen to me, but raising three kids has altered my reading habits. With Peterson's recent return to the public scene, he says, I decided to return to the work. And he says, I'm currently reading rule number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street, and plan to review the work eventually. Now, John Miltimore says, but before tackling the entire book, it seemed appropriate to share the most important rule in Peterson's seminal work, which has sold more than 3 million copies worldwide. You ready for this? Do you have a chair? Okay, take a seat. Do you have somebody to drive you home if this is too shocking? Here's the rule. Take responsibility for your life. That's it. It sounds simple, trite even. It's something you'd expect your father or maybe your grandmother to tell you after you screwed up or got fired. But John Miltimore says, nevertheless, it's a message sorely needed right now. Norman Doidge, who wrote the foreword to 12 Rules, agreed that that is the primary lesson from Peterson's book. Doidge, who's a psychiatrist, author, and friend of Peterson, said the foremost rule is that you must take responsibility for your own life, period. Now, to be clear, take responsibility is not actually one of Peterson's 12 rules, but Doidge's assessment is correct, and it should come as little surprise. Personal responsibility over one's life is an idea embedded throughout the rules Peterson offers throughout his book, as an antidote to the chaos many of us feel today. By the way, it's also a theme of his lectures and interviews. So when Peterson says, stand up straight, make good friends, set your own house in order first, tell the truth, make your bed, be precise in speech, etc., he's not really concerned about how clean your room is. He's instructing readers on how they can take control of their own lives. He's reminding them of their power, their agency. So the question is, why does this lesson suddenly feel so important? After all, this is not exactly a new message, right? In many ways, Peterson's teachings channel some of the ancient Stoics who millennia ago taught that the path to a peaceful and happy life was to master the one thing humans can truly control, themselves. Where is the good in our choices, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus once observed? Where is the evil in our choices? And John Miltimore says the message of the Stoics was not to subject your own feelings, your own happiness, to external factors. After all, we often have little control over events and circumstances and people. The path to harmony and happiness is learning how to control how we, as individuals, respond to these things. Now, just as a quick aside here, because we're coming up on the break, but um, I think one of the reasons why uh, there has been pushback, and in some cases almost violent pushback against Peterson's message, is because when he talks about personal responsibility, he is undermining one of the central tenets of uh, cancel culture, social justice warriors, and so forth, who, who preach the gospel of victimhood. They preach victimhood as a virtue. And the central tenet of victimhood is that a victim is not responsible for his or her circumstances. So you can see why, you know, someone saying, well, take responsibility for your life. That kind of threatens uh, to undermine everything that makes victimhood, you know, the get out of jail free card that it's turning into. I'm a victim. You should feel bad. You should do exactly what I say because I'm a victim. Yeah, if I'm taking responsibility for my life, I don't have time to try to order you around or control you. Too busy getting my own house in order. See how that works? Yeah. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks again for <clears throat> joining us here on The Brian Hyde Show. I'd like to ask a favor, too. If you are finding value in the message you hear in this program, I'd like you to consider, first of all, subscribing to the podcast. Podcasting is the frontier. This is where I am, you know, focusing my efforts to build my audience. Even though there are a number of great radio stations and different networks that are carrying the show, um, please, you know, subscribe. And if you find that this is worth your time and it's, it's in, enlarging your understanding of the world or motivating you to think for yourself as opposed to telling you what to think, can I suggest maybe become a monthly donor or a monthly patron? Seriously, for the cost of a, uh, you know, $5 taco box at Taco Bell, you could be doing a great deal to help me stay focused on what I do, and uh, then I don't uh, have to work as many side jobs to you know keep the wolves away from the door. I greatly appreciate those of you who are supporters of the show. Again, I, I only ask you to consider this if you find value. And if you don't, that's okay. It's not going to hurt my feelings. But again, thanks to those who have taken advantage of this. There is a link at the bottom of the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com where you can both uh, subscribe or, if you choose, become a patron. Back to this article from John Miltimore. This is from Fee.org, the Foundation for Economic Education. Jordan Peterson's most important rule for life, the idea of learning how to control how we as individuals respond to the storms that come in life. Now, John Miltimore says the ideas of self-empowerment, self-control, individual initiative, they're hardly unique to just the Stoics, of course. Other ancient philosophies explored these concepts to varying degrees, and the themes are interwoven in the American idea and found in classic works like Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac or Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. Miltimore says the problem, as Peterson sees it, is Americans are no longer receiving these lessons. In a 2018 interview with British CQ or GQ, rather, Peterson was asked why the people were so hungry for his message. He responded, they are hungry for a discussion of the relationship of responsibility and meaning. We haven't had that discussion in our culture for 50 years. Now, John Miltimore says that's an incredible statement. For most of human history, thinkers have explored this issue. How are individual choices intersected with living a life of meaning, perhaps above all others? It was central to the philosophies of thinkers from Plato and Aristotle to Immanuel Kant and Nietzsche. But Peterson says we no longer grapple with these questions. Postmodern philosophy has taken us in new directions. Peterson says we've concentrated on rights and privileges and freedom and impulsive pleasure, and these are all useful in their place, but they're shallow. And that's not good. Because if people are moored shallowly, then storms wreck them, and storms come along. Leaning into responsibility is how humans learn to bear storms, which are inevitable. And as many know, Peterson encountered his own storm when his wife, Tammy, was diagnosed with terminal cancer back in April of 2019, and he himself struggled with a dependency on the drug benzodiazepine. Peterson survived his storm because his life was moored in responsibility, which offered meaning and strength. But John Miltimore says, sadly, many people today are unmoored. When Peterson says, we haven't had a discussion on responsibility and meaning in our culture for 50 years, 
He's alluding to a cultural shift that's taken place. It's not just that we don't teach people how to take responsibility for their own life. It's that in many ways we actively discourage them from doing so. Woke culture, safe spaces, victimhood, each is a manifestation of a culture that has replaced individual responsibility with collectivist notions of injustice. This means people are openly hostile to Peterson's message of owning your life. Now, John Miltimore says this is not to say that injustice is not real. It is, and it always will be. The problem is that in our quest of ridding the world of injustice, we've forgotten that we must first own and fix ourselves. Moreover, Peterson's message is not to ignore injustice. His message is to take responsibility for your life despite the presence of injustice, which will always exist. Peterson has pointed out, for example, that studies show uh, that a parolee's fate hinges to a troubling degree on whether the hearing judge ruled before or after her lunch. Apparently, hungry judges are much less likely to be forgiving. So this is how one becomes a ship that can weather storms, says John Miltimore, not by placing your power in things beyond your control, but by taking responsibility over the things you can. The very fact that people can treat Peterson's message as foreign, strange, or worthy of their hostility is evidence of how necessary it is. And he says we should be thankful that Jordan Peterson is back to deliver it. Have to agree. I'm no great stoic myself, but I do agree with what he's saying here. By the way, I have a question for you, and that is, how free do you feel to speak your mind? Do you find it tough to openly say what you're thinking? I think the answer for most people is going to depend on how much risk you face of either being deplatformed from social media or maybe even being deplatformed from your own job. Got a great column here from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org, sticking up for the First Amendment. And I love how he starts this out. He says, there's an advantage to being 70 years old with no Twitter account, no interest in Facebook, no regular job, and no financial dependence. And the advantage is he can speak his mind. Now, he says, I refrain from pushing my politics on others, but if asked, I will tell you why I supported, I will tell you rather that I supported the Trump-Pence ticket, and I'll explain why. If asked my opinion of the Biden-Harris administration, I'll explain why their policies, open borders, creations of massive amounts of federal debt, divisive racial politics, may prove the ruination of our country. Now, many others lack this luxury. Questioning mandatory critical race theory training sessions at office at the office may soon find you filing for unemployment. Speak out against such indoctrination in your child's school, and you may become a pariah at your local PTA meetings. In the miseducation of American of America's elites, liberal columnist Barry Weiss writes of speaking with wealthy parents whose children attend exclusive private schools. Now these parents meet in secret to discuss the school's CRT critical race theory curriculum and its effects on their children. They're afraid to protest directly to the school for fear that their opposition might adversely affect their children's grades. Wow, that's some kind of leverage. In wealthy Loudoun County, Georgia, a group composed mostly of teachers and former teachers compiled a list of parents whom they suspected of opposing CRT. The members of this private Facebook group, Anti-Racist Parents of Loudoun County, We're collecting information on those objecting to critical race theory with the intention of coercing them into meek acceptance of their pet programs. Now, these assaults on our freedom of speech are unrelenting. If you refer to COVID-19 as the Wuhan flu or the CCP virus, you know, Chinese Communist Party virus, or you might fall victim to a cancel culture mob. If someone asks you if you plan on receiving the vaccine and you answer in the negative, 
They'll attack you without first ascertaining whether you might have a medical condition that gives you pause. Claim you're offended by critical race theory training like one white teacher I know. And he says you'll come under fire. Jeff Minnick says some Americans know what this silencing means and what it will and where it will lead. Among us live Czechs, Hungarians, East Germans, Poles, Russians, people who have endured communist, uh, communist dictatorships. In other words, they know firsthand what it means to live in a place and time where they were forced to self-censor, where they always had to be careful with their words. More recently, the Chinese, who have escaped communism, remind us of the importance of free speech. He says on Election Day last November, my daughter was driving through Scranton, Pennsylvania. On a bridge above the highway were some 20 Asians all holding up Trump signs. Likewise, he says, when I was in Washington, D.C. for the January 6th rally, I was struck by the large number of Chinese-American Donald Trump supporters, all of them handing out literature about their former country and the dangers of communism. So what's to be done, he asks, how do we defend our First Amendment rights? Well, to begin with, he says, we must recognize that silence gives consent. To remain silent in the face of oppression is to allow that oppression to grow and thrive. He says parents must remember they are the primary educators of their children, never to be replaced by the state. If your children's schools introduce a critical race theory curriculum or some other program that smacks of anti-American propaganda, you must either protest directly or remove your child from the offending school. He says all Americans must guard our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to that document are not laws laid down by a government, but are the natural rights of all men and women. And when our government attempts to limit or take away those rights, we are obligated to stand. He says, in the last year, we've seen these rights eroded by mandates from governors and mayors on account of COVID-19. We've seen businesses closed, many of them permanently. Churches and schools shut down. Freedom of assembly largely denied. Now, he says, many of us followed these orders, but those who protested are a glimmer of hope for our country. In his 1999 address to Harvard Law School, Winning the Culture War, which, by the way, he highly recommends, Charlton Heston said of political correctness, it means telling us what to think has evolved into telling us what to say. So telling us what to do can't be far behind. Well, we've reached that point today, and that's the bad news. But he says the good news is more and more Americans are becoming sick and tired of cancel culture and government controls. They're starting to think for themselves and disobey petty tyrants. And I guess if there's anything I would add to Jeff Minnick's message, it's just simply this. You are not alone. So make that stand. This is The Brian Hyde Show.